Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Copy Open Source, a place where we could have great conversations about the technology we love and have a little fun along the way, too. I'm super excited for my guest. I got coffee. Let's get started. I'm super excited because this particular guest, I most people that are going to be watching the stream know about him. He uh, has been in the Microsoft technology space for a long time. I'm super excited that he had some time to join us. My guest is Rich Campbell. Hello, Rich. Isaac, how you doing? I'm I'm a tea drinker, so there's the tea, and this I mean, is that's my custom-made Kerbal mug. <sighs> Kerbal oh. Space Program is like one of the games, one of the games that's my guilty pleasure. Uh, my friend uh, caught me on to it, and it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I, I can't, I don't have the wherewithal to be a NASA engineer, but I can definitely play yeah. one on TV, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I learned more about orbital mechanics from Kerbal Space Program than any book I ever read. You know, yeah, you, it's, you, you truly appreciate the Oberth maneuver once you're flying in Kerbal. Yeah, and as somebody who has always aspired to be a pilot, like I, it's one of the things on my list is to get the my PPL. I have a friend who just got his recently, and right. it's it it's one of those things where you know as common folk, we don't have very many opportunities to do things that are extraordinary. And I feel like, to quote a comedian, who we can't say his name anymore, but flying through the air in a metal can, right? Yeah. Like, we're not allowed to say... air in the sky. One of the greatest bits of all time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Um, It's it's what, you know, that that philosophical conversation of the separation between the art and the artists, you know, you you, you can admire the art, but you're appalled problem i think we're seeing more and more these days yeah awesome so anyway so let's we can get started with the conversation i know folks are excited to kind of hear your thoughts about open source in general do you want to just for the for the folks who may not know who you are give a quick intro uh my name is richard campbell i wrote my first line of code in 1977 i was all 10 years old and it was a 10 print quote hello world but you know, it caught me. I, I've really not done anything else. So my first job was repairing computers at 12. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was always good with the soldering iron. And so I've just worked my way through almost every job you can think of in one way or the another over the years. Uh, made a few businesses along the way. You know, the dot-com boom was me really helping scale websites. And uh, it led to a lot of interesting opportunities. Uh, most folks know me for the podcast, so I had the good fortune to meet Carl Franklin in person, although admittedly, I already knew who he was when we met sure. at a conference in 2004, and uh, he had started .NET Rocks in 2002, which predates the word podcast. Yep. So he was making an internet audio talk show for .NET developers, and his co-host uh, for the first 50 shows was a guy named Mark Dunn. And then for the second 50 shows, uh, Mark got too busy with his training, and he, he brought in a guy named Rory Blythe. And I was actually a guest in during Rory's tenure. And uh, I don't know, something about Carl and I clicked. You know, we're about the same age, both had daughters, you know, we, but he's on the East Coast, I'm on the West Coast. And so as Rory joined Microsoft, and, you know, Microsoft's an all-consuming job, too, and so... Uh, as of episode 100, I became co-host. So the previous two co-hosts, they'd each done 50 shows. And I figured, ah, I'll sign up for 50 shows. I mean, how hard could it be? Anyway, we're at show 1760 now. 
So uh, yeah, you're like <laughs> yeah. There's lots and lots of episodes. So between yeah. you didn't even mention the other one, right? You have another one that's just as popular, right? Yeah. Well, there's two. So in the dark times of .dot net, <laughs> yeah. uh, we actually launched another show called the Tablet Show. Because um, I wasn't where, sure where to put iOS and Android content, and tablets were super important. Uh, and so from 2011 to 2014, we made the tablet show. We made 140 episodes. And by 2014, it became clear that the tablet development was just Windows development, too, or just .NET development. And we rolled it back into .NET Rocks. But I started Run As Radio uh, back in 2007, largely because I was frustrated with the little bit of podcasts that existed then uh, that were IT oriented were very hostile to Microsoft. Admittedly, sure. it was a hostile time. You know, that's right after I launched in in April of 2007. Vista had just shipped. What a great time to be talking about Microsoft IT. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that uh, so that's every Wednesday since April 11th, 2007. So that's 750 something shows. So about. 2,500 podcast episodes I've recorded in the past um, 15, 16 years. That's, yeah. I mean, so I've been fortunate enough to be a guest on Run As. Uh, we had yeah. a great time talking about app ins application insights. It seems like literally 400 years ago, just because <laughs> we, just because the 2020 was exactly 17 years long. Um, yeah, well, I, as near as I can tell, it's still March 365th, right? So Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I, I remember, so my wife and I had the pleasure, of, we went to Las Vegas literally like two days before the, the state of Washington shut down. So we came right. back and we're like, oh, um, we're in this dystopian society now where everybody has masks on, everybody, you know, is not allowed to touch each other. And it's, I mean, we're, it's almost March, going to be March in a week, so it's going to be coming up on the year of it, which yeah. is just insane to think about but there is yeah, one thing time, that's been go ahead yeah i mean this time last year i was in new york and there was it had been you know a disease in a foreign country but it yeah. started we started out was in italy and then while i was in new york was when the new rochelle outbreak happened and that sort of kicked off new york's lockdown and and uh then the the, the Prime Minister of Canada is like, Canadians need to come home. And I came home that day, basically, March 13th. And that's now the longest stretch I've been home in 20 years. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely absurd. Absolutely absurd. And I know and I'm glad that we're finally getting to a point where things are starting. You can just feel the normalcy come back. Yeah, yeah I don't know what the new normal is going to be. Uh, it, it's, it's an interesting thought. Uh, for Run As last year, I started doing a second show per week, uh, specifically on topics around the pandemic, what IT mm -hmm. folks need to think about. I, yeah. I did this show in April, a solo show, which is very unusual for me, just talking about it. Hey, you know, having run IT for many years, here's what I would worry about. How are you going to get people working from home? How are you going to scale your VPN? What workloads can you shift to the cloud? You know, just sort of going through that list of things. And the response to that was so powerful. I literally just made it a separate show. But by the end of 2020, I couldn't tell the difference between a pandemic show and regular IT. Yeah. They're yeah. the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. As somebody who, so uh, 
most of the folks who follow the stream and, and know who I am know I so I work at events at Microsoft. So I mm-hmm. work on building demos for our our keynotes and our other major like developer sessions, right? And this space, the event space, it is and you know this very well as somebody who is an organizer for an event, like it's turned this into a very interesting time, right? Where yeah. the idea of physical space is no longer necessary to put together very, very large scale events. It's it's crazy. I don't think that's ever going to be the same. I do think that there's going to be a return, but not in the capacity that it was. We're not going to see 100,000 people in Vegas for, you know, AWS reInvent or anything like that. I have a hard time imagining yeah, something I don't know like what that. that looks like. That's really interesting. I also think if you look at the metrics that matter to an organization like Microsoft about why they do events, like they're not in the events business they're in the product business and the events are a way to approach those products go being forced to go virtual with everyone else has brought some interesting statistics i mean the reach is tremendous yes the cost per contact substantially lower there's a there's always a question of quality and that's an ongoing effort effectiveness is an interesting question too but when i think of the general metrics like when someone pres- presumes, you know, presents the idea of going back to an in-person conference, you, there's going to be a lot of questions. Yeah. Like, how, how do we justify this this new yeah. cost for this reduced reach yep. uh, and and less content? Like that's that's tricky. Yeah. I, I know that very much so, and it's certainly I feel it that humans want to be with other humans. Like, oh, for sure. You know, doesn't matter how introverted any of us are. This has been a long year. Yeah. away from from most other people. Uh, so I'm sure there's going to be some kind of in-person component, but I can't imagine us doing an in-person show of any kind that isn't still online first. It isn't digital in some way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you make a very good point about, like, the cost per customer acquisition, right? Like, you know, that's, the, that's like, one of the number one metrics. Like, if anybody who watches Shark Tank and thinks they're an entrepreneur knows, it's like, mm-hmm. how much does it cost to get that customer? And sure, like we've always had an online component to our events, right? But now, instead of a customer having to pay $3,000, $3,500 for a ticket and then pay for, you know, lodging or their company paying for lodging. hotel food, out of the office for a week, like. Yeah. Yeah. Or else they can just, yeah, or else they can just take two or three hours off. You know, maybe, you know, in between meetings, they can watch content, all the content's on demand. I think yeah. one of the things that's also, you know, from an internal perspective at Microsoft, and we'll start, we'll talk about more open source stuff, but I, I just happen to like talking specifically about events with somebody like you as somebody who has done it, right? Mm-hmm. Going from, you know, in-person to virtual, it's also like lessened the necessity to, I guess, have things already at one particular time, right? Yeah. So like you have things in an event, Okay, well, our keynote is at this particular time. If your demo doesn't work at this particular time, we're having a tr- we're having a problem. And yeah. now, like folks are very much aware, like a lot of these uh, demos are pre-recorded. A lot of the sessions entirely are pre-recorded. They're far more polished because it's like producing a TV show instead of producing yeah. an event. So you know the quality has even gotten better. You know, well, how many times have you studio? Right? I mean, yeah. I didn't own this many lights a year yeah. ago. <laughs> yeah, like how many times have you been in an event and 
that you can tell there's this huge demo that's about to happen and then it fails or yeah. the internet goes down, right? That doesn't happen in a in a digital first no. world, right? Uh, well, and even, the, even playing the recorded event, but the ho the the presenter is there to interact. Yeah. So in some ways, having that you know having that event recorded, but you still get to talk to the presenter, yeah. arguably is a better outcome. Like. Yeah. I'm fighting hard against this idea of the remote or the, you know, the online event being the lesser cousin of the in-person. I mean, I know there's some powers to in-person, but we're starting to get better with the tooling and the approaches to how people consume online content to say, can we actually make a superior product? One that achieves those primary goals more effectively, not just cost-effectively, but that you do learn it. You do become a customer that conversion is successful, like those kinds of metrics. Can be measured. Yeah. And I think one of the, the big things that hasn't been solved yet, and it's only a matter of time, is the 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 showroom presence, the partner presence at events, right? Yeah. Like that's what that's the that's the people that are really getting hurt by no having in person events, right? Your mm. Microsoft partners yeah, that are trying found, to sell I found products. Some vendors that have found ways to do things. Yeah. They're doing some of their own events. They're adjacent to other events. They have their own rooms and presentations and so forth. I think the hallway track's also a real struggle. Yeah. Like that, you know, when I think about, uh, you know, I'm in a weird place being the .NET Rocks guy, and I'm in Vancouver, so I'm like a two-and-a-half-hour drive from Redmond when the border's open. I haven't been down there in a year now. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, a different conversation. So, like, I'm the one person who doesn't need to go to the session most of the time. Sure. Right? And same for stuff like the MVP Summit. I get to see the product teams on a regular basis. You know, I go there to meet with them to help plan, you know, the, I get to know their roadmap so I can plan shows. It helps them, helps us, helps the listener. It's all good stuff. So when there's an event on, I kind of step back, get out of the way. Folks that don't normally get to reach those those uh, team members, they, they're the ones who should be talking then. Hallway track is everything to me. Those other conversations and other meetings, and that's, that's really hard to recreate in an event dynamic. I know. I mean, you're seeing there's some folks that have, have started to figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're, you know, Scott Hanselman's of the world and people like that who have figured out a way to get that hallway track in a digital way. You know, I, yeah. you know, you know, Scott, obviously he he's trying. You can tell he's trying very, very hard to keep up that concept of like being very approachable. Right. It's yeah. very hard to be approachable when you can't leave your house. So, yeah. Well, and it's you, it's you do a lot of digital events. You go to other people's things. It's certainly, yeah. I've never learned anything doing my own stuff per se. Sure. I learned sure. way more being involved with other people, folks' things. And I try not to be hypocritical. Like, I ask a lot of people to come on podcasts and to, to be parts of conferences and stuff every yeah. year. The least I could do is say yes to anybody who would like me to participate too. Oh, for sure. And I, yeah, that's a, great segue to thanking you again for hopping on right like uh, yeah. i don't know if you were digging for a compliment you know but you no, your openness I, to being here is very very appreciated how would i say no I, i'm not that guy for starters and grateful for the opportunity i, I yeah. have stories to tell yeah i think and you know i want to kind of transition away from talking about the pandemic and events and stuff and stuff and talk more about your open source history and some of the things that you've done. Um, but I just want to call out, you know, our friend Rick Vandenbosch, who's on chat and he's talked about how he's talking about how, 
you know, COVID is soup has been super tremendous for virtual events, right? Like now you have meetups and local user groups and like they have like these full fledged events now, which, mm -hmm. you know, is super exciting. And it gives people, you know, more ability to amplify their community, amplify their community's message. And I think that's, you know, it's great. I think that's a really spot on thing. Like for, and it's also great for the communities because how often do you get somebody from across the country presenting at your local meetup, right? Yeah. And now that it's all online, it's as simple as, hey, are you free Wednesday at 7 p.m.? Uh, you can do this talk. Like I'm right now, I'm planning to, I'm doing a talk for the a Porto meetup group, Porto with Spain. You know, it's right. like, I've been there Portugal, zero times. Okay. What? What was that? I think it's Portugal, actually. Did I say okay. Spain? I think I said Spain. No, you know, Porto it's in Spain. Knowing since... the Portuguese, man. Yeah, no, yeah, don't, don't exactly. <laughs> Apologies to my Portuguese friends. Uh, I think one of the things that's, you know, exciting as well about this whole concept of events going virtual is that there's always been this thing that I've seen. It's like events in our events, at least in tech space, are very U.S. centric. Mm -hmm. Right. And the ability to have digital events that actually are catering to audiences from all over the world's time zones. Right. Like that was one of the things that we when we did build last year, which I think was like the first major tech conference in a covid world. Yeah. Like we were very deliberate and we need th we need to run this show three times. We need to run yeah. it Pacific time. We need to run it GMT and we need to run it you know, uh, Southeast Asian time. So like yeah. where, you know, where you can hit folks from India and hit folks from China, right? Like you have to be able yeah, to accomplish. You, you yeah. did minus eight plus eight and yeah. zero, right? Exactly, that, right? That sort of gives you the full span. It's a, is it a reasonable hour for each, for all the time zones? Yeah, and I know that some folks didn't get like, and we were very deliberate. Like we made it so like the, the actual major sessions were live during those time zones. It wasn't just pre-records, right? So, like, yeah. you know, some folks weren't happy about having to be up at, you know, 2 a.m. or something. Um, but at the end of the day, like, you look at the numbers that we did for Build, and it's like, look, 200,000 people watching a keynote? Like, that's... That's not a bad day, man. No, that's not a bad thing at all. Communicating so, a lot to a lot of folks, yeah. and folks that would never be able to come to Seattle. Like just yeah. not a feasible thing. It's an astronomical amount of money. It's an, an tremendous amount of time and effort. So I mean, it's powerful to reach people you've never reached before. Yeah, and I have this. I have this belief that when people come here and they see Seattle or in the Pacific Northwest, they're very much like, "This is a cool place. I'm going to stay here." And as somebody who took a ten year break from living here, I'm from here yeah. originally, and then I left for ten years and came back. I don't, like, I'd always run into people, like, outside of Seattle, like, oh, Seattle's great, I always want to live there. I'm like, yeah, yeah, if you can put up with the weather for eight months a year, it's the best place on Earth. The Great um, Gray. Yeah, and I've always told people that it's literally the best summer out of any place in the world. Like, you get a well, good, like... Part of it is that we're so excited about it. When the sun comes <laughs> Well, that's here, true, that's true, right? That's true. I mean, it... it my friends have told me it's our, this is our second year back. So friends have told me that the summers are hotter and hotter and hotter, which that's not a thing supposedly. But um, I think one of the things that's really interesting about that is that now people actually have to care about sunscreen and things like that. Because growing up, never wore sunscreen, and I have very fair skin, so I and I never lobstered around. So yeah, it's uh, it, it's definitely evolved, and the and the winters are certainly even milder than they've ever been. Yeah. 
Yeah, perfect. Awesome. So let's talk more about open source, right? So one of the things mm-hmm. that I, you said a while back is that you got start got started coding in the 70s, right? Yeah. I think you might be my most senior guest. I did have a, um, a guest, Ian Lance Taylor. I don't know if you know who Ian is. He is one of the designers of the Go language. Wow. And and he was living um, he was living in Berkeley when Richard Solomon was running around with his pamphlets, right? And he was going and he went to Berkeley. So like it's having him talk about those sort of things and what it was like being in tech right when things started to become more clear that people wanted to have a say in the way their software operated, right? Yeah. Not just okay, I'm going to get this software from this particular company and then use it based completely on their spec. I want to be able to not just modify it for my business needs, but also change the way it behaves in certain scenarios across the board, right? Do you remember a particular time when you saw that particular opportunity to say, okay, I know that this is how this software works, but I really need to change it for my particular need and segueing into kind of the idea of open source and building upon the work of others? That, you know, I came to open source slowly because I am a really old school developer. You know, the, you were, I was selling source code in the 80s and 90s. Like that was the, the business, right? And they, it was part of your agreements as you were completing things. It's like, how did you give out the source code? Uh, I admit to have dropped printed copies of my source on my client as we were wrapping up relationships. Like, good luck with this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, you know, I was pretty comfortable even into the early 2000s. I mean, aware of the open source movement, but not inspired by it. It was, it was for dev tooling for the web in yeah. my world. Uh, it really, Humanitarian Toolbox, the first time I said, like, open source is the right way to do this. But, and it was from the context that we need to build sustainable software that isn't bound to any one person or organization. Uh, yeah, you know, Humanitarian yeah. Toolbox, is, my mindset was I, I, had, I had seen how developers contributed to charity. And I was mm-hmm. frustrated with the the difficulty that they had. Uh, you know, it's you can't just write code for a weekend and hand it over to a non technical group yes. of folks and and expect it to thrive. It it takes continuous care and feeding. There's a lot more to software than the code. The code is a small part of the equation, really. Uh, and people repeating effort. I had met some folks as I as I was trying to decide what we were going to what we were doing like why would you make something like this it's like there's got to be a better way for developers to contribute their talents their ability to code to folks that that need that help yeah. but also uh you know what's the problem space because you don't want to waste volunteer time or waste code either and i met some folks who worked on katrina so that i mean that's the hurricane in 2005 i mean we yeah. forget how long ago yeah. that and it was years, one of the first time. times you saw the internet really kick in and participate in an emergency. Sure. And so these folks had written the Pet Finder app. So back then, if FEMA showed up to evacuate you in the face of a hurricane, you were not allowed to bring your animal with you. Yeah. And, and that, that rule, by the way, has changed now. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
But at that time, it's like you have a choice. You leave your animal here and come with us and we'll keep you safe. Or you, you know, face the hurricane on your own and people died. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But the consequence of that was often the animals survive, houses destroyed and so forth. And so as the rescue workers came back into the sites damaged by the hurricane, they were finding animals. And you've got people that have been taken out of the disaster site. They're in these evacuation centers, terrified of what's happened to their animal. And you have yeah. these lost animals. And so it was a simple software problem, right? Even in 2005, I mean, it's before the iPhone, but people had phones on their on their cam uh, cameras mm -hmm. on their phones. And so they were taking pictures of these animals and then the, the site would help you organize the data so people could find their animals. And it yeah. worked, which is cool. Great use of technology, you know, something that could be put together in a matter of days, even in 2005, yeah. and without a doubt, reconnected animals with their with their families. Great story. The guy I was talking to had written that up three times. Because at the end of the disaster, you know, it's a it's a rush, right? It's an emergency. You put that app together, you borrow some hardware, you stand up the website, you do the thing, the emergency winds down, people take their hardware yeah. back, they repurpose it, source code gets lost. Yeah. And so then the next disaster show, different hurricane, you know, now it's in Florida. Oh, we're gonna have that problem again, writes it over again. Yeah. Like, is this really a good use of skills? And so in the con when we started Humanitarian Too Much about 2012, it was actually part of a .NET Rocks road trip. As we were planning the road trip, the the sponsors asked us, like, can we add a charitable element to the tour? Which is a great idea. And I, arguably, I should have done something simple like, you know, let's make donations to Kids to Code or yeah. United Way or something like that. But I was gnawing on this problem of, how hard it is for developers to donate their time to charity in an efficient way. And so we came up with this idea of if we build it as open source, then it lives somewhere and anybody can pick it up and run with it again. So we can continue to contribute to it over time. But what if we actually got better at this over time rather than starting over with each disaster, we can build up a toolbox of, of resources that can help folks during a disaster. Uh, and that, you know, was the, sort of the, the kernel of that. And I have the, yeah. uh, by the way, I have the OneNote notes from that meeting. You know, playing with those ideas. Completely segue, but obviously, you, so on .NET Rocks, you talk a lot about when you're, you know, you're building out the history of .NET book, right? And you're like, all yeah. of these artifacts that people just have in their, in their, you know, uh, book stands at their house, right? They, like, I would love for you to, if it's in any way readable by somebody not named Richard Campbell, like I think people would love to hear like how, because let's be real, like you built an organization around technology from a charitable standpoint. Yeah. Right. Like that's something that's brilliant, right? And I interrupted you, but you know, continue on. No, no, kind no of it's your... fine. I don't know how good my notes actually are. The notes I've started, I got diligent about one note because of the .NET Rocks geek outs because people sure. really wanted those notes. And so yeah. I started organizing and keeping all those. And OneNote's just been, I mean, it's been as, more than 10 years. As somebody who gets day. very excited about the geek outs, right? I just assume that it's all in your head and you're just like, Carl just says, hey, Richard, talk about space travel. Oh, okay, well, I'm gonna talk about space travel for the next 18 minutes with no interruption. And it's all in my head. That's why I just assume, right? Yeah, it, I can riff. <laughs> pretty well but yeah. I you know 
it's easy to transpose numbers when you're riffing. So I do yeah. make sure that the details are there. My recall is pretty strong. But so I'll often when we're tackling a topic like that, I'll write down what I think I know and then I'll yeah. go verify. Sure. You know, so there are creepy things I've done. Like apparently I can name every U.S. Mars mission in chronological order. I mean, uh, because when I wrote them out from memory, then I checked it. It was like, OK, that's correct. Now, granted, yeah. the, you know, the Mariner numbers do go up. So that's easy. But still. Uh, yeah, you probably have some photographic memory. Yeah. Uh, the other piece is when you're dealing with complex subject material, like often I'm, I'm just putting all the different things that are together and then a story emerges from it. Yeah. You know, I didn't go into doing the fusion series knowing it would stratify into there are government projects, there are tech billionaire projects, because every tech billionaire has a fusion project. And then there's the weirdos, there's sort of the low energy reactions and things like that, like that emerged from that, the organizing of that information. Yeah, it's even, pretty brilliant. Well, thanks. <laughs> They're hard work, and I'd like to make them their own thing, but I've got to finish some stuff and get stuff out of my head first before I can really pour yeah. as much time into it as it deserves. Yeah. But, yeah, HD Box was very much the same thing of just pulling these pieces together. Uh, we fell into the idea of disaster response because it was it's borderless. Yeah. Right? I, I, I'm always concerned about making something that's very Western-centric. Yeah, you know, and still we struggle with that because most parts of the world, it is government's responsibilities to to respond to disaster. The idea that yeah. the citizen would is bizarre. The idea that they wouldn't just have their you know software made uh, through government contract is odd. So we're struggling with some things there, but it, we also fall, find gaps, places where code doesn't exist and could. And so, and where folks want to volunteer, they want to put in their time. And vo volunteerism around programming is a lot easier if it's open source, because they know where their work is going, that nobody's going to, to capitalize on a profit from it, per se, use their code in an unreasonable way. It's like we put it out there with an open source, with a, with a generous license, but, you know, here it is. But at least you know where your work lands and how it was used for the most part. Yeah, uh, and no, that, I mean, those those are the key model parts. Like that, those seem to be absolutely essential. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really telling too is right right now, as most people are aware, we're in the middle of a. I don't want to use the word pandemic because I use that term gets used way too frequently. But we're yeah. we're in a situation where we need technology and we need all of these great things that people have built to better understand how to get out of it, right? Like, I don't know if you've had an opportunity to follow like the COVID project, right? That the, like, you know, just the, the, the amount of data is, it's almost, it's, it's, terrifying. it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's impossible I, to comprehend. I did a show with, um, with Lynn Langett over on the run ass side as part of the pandemic series, because she's working on, with a group doing the data analytics around the genetic data. And yeah. just the scope of the problem, but, I mean, I think need is strong. Humanity has survived pandemics before sure. without the technology we have today. That's uh, fair. We just cost a lot more lives. Uh, the, the, the advantage now is our technology gives us the opportunity to monitor, manage, and control this crisis in a way we've never been able to before. Yeah. Uh, we are going to 
benefit society as a whole long term. Like the, the maturation of the mRNA vaccine will, I think, historically be a fundamental milestone in our culture. Yeah. It, it opens the door to man making bespoke medicine uh, for virtually anything in a very reasonable length of time. And it's on the backs of our ability to analyze genetic data, incredible amount of compute and software that will, I mean, the whole idea of tailored medicine comes from these things. I think one of the things that's really important to call out too is that as technologists, we have this gross trait across all of us that we just want to understand how things work. Mm -hmm. Even if it's not technology related, like I was having a conversation with, with a friend about like how exactly do these vaccines with such the short time frame they've had to be successful, like how are they successful? How are they, yeah. you know, you know, 90, 95% effective, effective rates, right? And I've tried to get my head around exactly how they've done it and it's challenging. And yeah. one of the things I think that having all this data and all this technology that feeds off of the data has been so good is that it is allowing us to better understand things, right? And people love pictures, so seeing, you know, graphics and charts and all these sort of things is, is help better understand some of the data. But it also is helping us figure out, hopefully, ways that when the next pandemic happens, not if the pandemic happens, but when the next one happens, how we're going to effectively I guess you could say not eradicate, but effectively prevent it from causing this much at scale, right? Well, your best example of that is the, the Moderna vaccine, was, which was developed from samples from the China uh, initial digital data from December of 2019. Moderna went through a bunch of iterations uh, very quickly, but by the middle of January 2020, the Moderna vaccine was complete. In fact, the vaccine that's going to people's arms now is the same yeah. one they made in January of 2020. Yeah. The, I have, I have, I got one in my arm. It's just, it's the testing process. And the <laughs> testing process, there's only one testing process based on vaccines, and it's based on the original concepts of vaccines, which are attenuated live virus vaccines. And yeah. your concern there is you're going to give someone the illness. Yeah. Where mRNA vaccines couldn't do that. So, uh, on the other hand, people want testing and they need to be sure. And this is the first vaccines of its kind. So I'm okay that it's done this much, although it's literally cost millions of lives. Uh, yes. But I would expect that going forward, we're going to be able to make vaccines even dramatically faster. This is already stunningly fast. To have it going yes. into arms in a year is unprecedented by many years. But it could be months instead. Yeah. Well, they tell you, they say like when, you know, the the fast tracking when they started to publicly announce it, right? I, you know, what was it like six months ago when they were saying like, oh, we have, you know, or there are active pharmaceutical companies that are building the vaccine. We're going to build this process to get them fast tracked into arms, and people were like, wait, 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 step back. Doesn't this take like three years? And you're saying it's yeah. going to happen in five months? Like people immediately got very cautious, right? Yeah. And especially, you know, everybody knows how the flu shot works, or at least not everybody. Most people know how the flu shot works. They put the flu in you, right? Yeah. An so, attenuated version of it. And also, yeah, exactly. Yes. They're looking at emerging flus yes. and taking existing vaccine and modifying it as a guess. And on a good year, there's 60%, it's 60% effective. Mm -hmm. In a bad year, it's 40% effective. 
Yeah. So to kind of, you know, when you hear the word vaccine, people immediately equate that to the flu vaccine, which is the most common vaccine there is. Or, you know, for people that are a little bit older, maybe, you know, the polio vaccine or the smallpox vaccine or whatever, right? So you're going to tell me you're going to give me a little bit that's that's been genetically modified. You're going to put that into me. Not genetically. Not typically chemically modified. Chemically modified. That's probably a fair, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for correcting me. Attenuation is generally done with compounds rather than direct manipulation. That's, see, way smarter than me in this particular Mm. space. Uh, Dude, I can't tell you how many, you know, you talk about notes. I was trying to keep up with the papers about the COVID research going on at the beginning of the year. But I think by April, it was thousands of papers a month, like, couldn't read them all there's so many well it's it's one of those things too where it just doesn't affect one type of science right it's the science mm-hmm. all the sciences chemistry biology physics computer yeah. science the, i mean a big part that came from this like the reason that the mrna thing came around so much is that a lot of scientists that are working on related areas of medicine specifically cancers this mrna approach is an approach for defeating cancer so you had those minds that have been already maturing this technology, the idea being, hey, you've got a tumor. We biopsy that tumor to prove that it's a, a potentially dangerous cancer. We then genetically map that cancer and build a vaccine specific for you to destroy that cancer in your body. That's the machine they've been working on for years. Those people now have targeted this. That's where why we've been able to move this fast. A, we threw buckets of money, literally billions yep. at them. Yep. But we also got all of those folks to stop all of those research on all those yep. other things yeah. and focus on this one. Yeah. And I mean, that's going to be a very interesting thing as we come out of this is like, there's going to be all sorts of funds that are going to have to be reappropriated. Yeah. Right. But that's going to be interesting. Jobs is going to be interesting, but the value of the research has come from this. I think we've, it's an accelerant. The same way this past year has been an accelerant to move to the cloud, mm-hmm. this is an accelerant for medicine. Right? The mRNA vaccine is real. It's mature. It's a working process. The use of genetic mapping uh, of illnesses is now a normal practice. Like For the most part, every sample ever taken of anyone testing for, for this disease has also been genetically analyzed. Yeah. That's why we're able to trace the heritages of all these different variants is that we're mapping them all. We're using statistical analysis with genetic information. That was not possible 10 years ago. No, and I think one of the things that's exciting about all this too is that it's take, like, as you're talking and and explaining kind of how this process is working, I'm seeing very, very many similarities between open source concepts and technology Mm -hmm. and the reusing of data and science in the medical field to confront this, right? And I think that's something that I haven't thought about a lot, but when I think of most medicine, I think of very closed source environments, right? Like, oh, I have these patents for this particular medicine, this, you know, there's a generic that comes from it, but at the end of the day, like, pharmaceutical company A knows exactly how to make this particular medicine. And you can modify it slightly for a generic, but... The one that's owned Generally, by you only make a generic once the patent expires or you're willing to release yeah. the patent. But, you know, fundamentally, science, real science, is all open source. You publish a paper of exactly yep. what you're doing and enough that other people can reproduce your results. Yep. And that's true in medicine as well. 
And typically the people reproducing your results are your competitors mm -hmm. because they want to invalidate your results too, that your product doesn't work. So, but they're honest. And if it does work, they're, they're validating it. And now the patents give you that time window to sure. profit from the expense of your research. Uh, you know, the difference with open source and software is the digital asset is essentially free and there's really no cost to repeating it indefinitely uh, in terms of manufacturing. But, the you know, the patent, we're in a weird time where we're trying to figure out how these patents make sense, what the healthy thing to do is, yeah. what, the, what, what the right way to do that. How do you justify the expenditure of the research, recoup that cost and benefit from it that makes it worth taking the risk to do that research? Yeah, I've had a couple of interviews with people who they have an open source concept, right? And then they have a service or a company behind it that does consulting, that does support, right. things like that, right? That's a very, very um, tried and true model of taking an open we'll source call concept. call it the and, traditional sustainable yeah. open source model. <laughs> yeah, right? The, like, or I like to phrase it, the way that you make money off of a free thing. Right. Yeah. And I think, but it's not, and I, I don't think it's the only way. Like, I, I do think we're at a time where people are exploring other models in open source to try and, and be sustainable. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that I, I love about open source is that it, it's the fact that anybody can just come to it and play around with it. Right. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I have a very hard time with open source with is that the barrier to entry, even though it's very small, in a lot of cases, it requires all this domain knowledge, right? Like you go to get, like anybody who's a developer or anybody who's working with technology has gone to GitHub, looked for something, found something that they think might work for what they're trying to do, and then spend the better part of a millennium trying to like get it to work and trying to massage it to do what they're trying to do, right? Almost to the effect that they're taking a, a concept in open source and trying to fit it into a block that it, a hole that the block doesn't fit into. And then they get very frustrating and leave and it's time wasted. Yeah. And I guess it depends on the project. Like if I think about those sort of origin parts of open source, where I built this tooling to help me in my job and it can help you in your job. Yeah. Uh, you only have so much interest in getting that person successful, but if you, you know, you care about the community, you care about that, those other folks being successful, you make that simpler and simpler and simpler. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily make you, money. I think folks often get into this place where it's like, hey, you know, my favorite thing in the world is my open source project. How do I make that my job? Yeah. Can I can I actually pull that off? Yeah. Right? Something we've not been successful with in any way, humanitarian toolbox. Like nobody's living off of humanitarian toolbox yeah. at all. Every one of us volunteer top to bottom. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Right. Sure. They, because we struggle with continuity. Folks have day jobs. They got to work on other things. There are certain people I wish we could put on full time to be focused because they would facilitate everyone else being productive. So we, we are feeling around for these models, but I also think that there, you can create perverse incentives. It's like, Hey, it's open source. So I'm covered in that goodness, but it's hard to get working. So you should pay for my consulting services to yeah. make it happen. Yeah. Or here's another good example, like the concept of, of, freemium services, right? Where it's like, mm -hmm. oh, you like this base version of this OSS software? We have a a paid version that has more bells and whistles. Maybe it has yeah. additional modules. Maybe it like, you know, as, as well, somebody I mean, who used all this crippleware for a reason, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. This is just a modern version of crippleware. Yeah, I think the the, the the difference between like traditional like, hey, this is not going to work 
or it's not going to do what you need in the future versus this doesn't have enough of what you want, right? It's like, to your point, it's changing the messaging just slightly to make it sound like it's a good thing. Even though it is a good thing because it's it's making sure people can live. It's making sure people can pay rent and all these other things. It's it's paying people salaries. But if more traditional open source people are very much like, why are you giving me this one thing but not giving me all of the things? Yeah. Yeah. Although I, I think the the mantra of everything on the internet needs to be free is starting to fade as yeah. folks are beginning to appreciate that. I want this to survive. Yeah. And for me, in the role of enterprise architect, when teams are coming at me saying, hey, we really want to use this open source library, I am looking very closely at the sustainability of that open source library. What does this library depend on? Is it Does it come down to a Jimmy Bogart? And I always pick on Jimmy because it makes me super uncomfortable. But he's such I mean, a great example of that. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, for folks who don't know, Jimmy has a very, very well-known open source project called Automapper and then mm -hmm. tons of other open source software that people use. Automapper is probably the one that's used the most. But yeah. you can take any of these people that have turned a concept into the one of the top 10 most used NuGet packages on the planet, right? You know, you're yeah. James Newton Kings of the world. You're, yeah. you know, these folks that they do need day jobs. And they're not doing, but they, they, they still love need day jobs. It's crazy <laughs> yeah. for something that's as wildly successful as it is. Yeah. And so for you as a developer to take a dependency on that piece of software and say, you know, am I prepared to maintain this without them? Because I do have the source code. Yeah. Uh, or do I have a sense that they're sustainable? This is where we now we play this game with the .NET Foundation, the JavaScript yeah. Foundation, the Apache Foundation, like all mechanisms, which were not actually meant for sustainability. They were meant for legal liability, which is a different conversation. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's very tough. And then at the same time you throw in, there's a pile of open source software out there that's actually built and developed by people paid full time by very large corporations like yeah. Microsoft and Google. Yeah, it's, it's funny this conversation that we're having right now because my guest last week was Mark Collier, who is one mm -hmm. of the, he's, you know, one of the, the chief executive, he's the COO of the Open Infra Foundation, right? So, you know, the concept of making infrastructure as a service available for everybody, right? Right. Like that, like that idea, you know, your previous statement is very funny because we were just talking about open source as a business model last week. Right. Where it's, you know, it, there's no better marketing arm of an organization than the open source arm. Right. You talk up, you can, you know, because open source is free. It's free marketing. Right. If people use your software in a way and they like it, there's no better marketing than public opinion. Yeah. Now, you definitely look at that fork count, the star count, the download yeah. count on any repository as yeah. a measure of merit of goodness. Yeah, as somebody who has uh, an open source project that a few people use, and like it's it's my child, right? I'll hold all you know, and when people say bad things about my child, I hate their guts. When they say good things about my child, Don't I my baby yeah, exactly, right. But it's one of those things too where you get so you you have this ability as somebody who owns an open source project to always want to work on it because it's something that you enjoy doing. It's a side gig, Action right? Project. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's very interesting to me about working through this stuff is that it's great to get feedback, but also at the same time, like all feedback isn't appreciated. 
And I think that's one of the things that people have to fight with with open source is, yes, everything is out there, but that also means that everybody's opinions are coming back to you. And yeah, if you, yeah, if you're more, if you're a little bit like me who gets offended easy in some scenarios, when somebody opens an issue on my on my repos, I immediately go. The first thing I respond to is why. Why are you doing yeah. this? And then I read the issue, and I'm like, oh, that's fair. It doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work, or you want something. But I, fa- I found out, and I've had this conversation so many times, about people see open source software, and they say, okay, does it meet every single criteria that I need of it? And the second that it doesn't, it's either they, they delete the folder they just cloned, or they open an issue, right? right. And I think that's, you know, that's great, because it, it invites all this collaboration. But I feel like, especially... As GitHub is more, GitHub is the place where people go to find open source. GitHub is basically turned into this place that, where I see if people just looking for stuff, and if they can't find it, or if it's they find something that's not as ideal, they're very open about, hey, fix this to my particular need. It's kind of like a, right. it's like it's like the Twitter or Reddit of source code, right? I mean, the kindest way to approach it, I think it's reasonable to take something out for a spin. Find the limitation that's relevant to you, yeah. and at least ask the question to the 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 owner. It's like, I, do you see this as a limitation? Is this on your roadmap? Because that yeah. at least gives me context for, do I want to take this on? Like, would you even accept my PR if I push it this way? Like, you shouldn't just. Uh, I'm very disturbed by folks who just look at something, build something for you. So here, I made this for you. Include it. It's like, were you gonna yeah. talk to me first? <laughs> Yeah. Now I've and I've run into that. So um, one of the things that I also do is I um, I'm on the marketing committee for the .NET Foundation. So we have this program called Project Spotlight, where I mm-hmm. interview maintainers of well-known projects on the .NET Foundation. So I've interviewed like you know the DNN folks. I've interviewed you know the Cake folks. And the first thing they always say when I talk about collaboration is, oh, well, we definitely have like a manifesto for contributors, right? Like. And I and to your point, it's terrifying if somebody like basically they they send a PR over that has four hundred files changed. And yeah. like, What's the chances you're going to accept? And you never spoke to them before. Like I've seen yeah. this in HT Box projects. Yeah. You know, I did this thing. It's like, uh, sorry, I can't accept this. Like, yeah. And I'm horrified that you put out this much effort. Yeah. Just have a conversation first. Like it's not, that's what the issue thing is for, right? The issue, you know, let's talk. So, you know, especially with with HT Box, right? Like I think one of the things that's very interesting is that, you know, you you have this, you mentioned that nobody has paid for it. So you're very dependent on citizen developers, right? People from all over. And so from your perspective, when somebody approaches you and says, hey, I want to be like a, a more active participant, like how does that conversation usually go? Um, well, we're always excited. Like it's always good news. Yeah. But you also understand we're a different, working in a different problem space. We're yeah. tightly tied to these disaster response workers and disaster preparedness folks, the experts. Mm-hmm. So this is not a dev tool where you're using the dev tool different and you can just contribute to it. This is a product that's pretty carefully planned. We write out a lot of issues based on the requirements the professionals have fed to Mm -hmm. us. And we're hoping folks will pick those issues up and take them on, uh, which is basically what happens. In some ways, it's kind of a kinder, gentler open source. Sure. But there's a very 
you know, testosterone element to looking at a dev, a, a free dev tool and saying, I like your dev tool, but I could make it better. Here's my thing, right? Yeah. Like, and I found we've gotten a bigger diversity of contributions from folks that would never do that. Like that they, yeah. they're glad it's like, hey, here's our plan for the project. Here's the roadmap. These are the pieces we need first. Does any of these resonate with you? Is this something you'd like to work on? This is the platform we're working in. Here are the resources we have. And so folks are able to work through things on that. And so they do pick up PRs. You know, we do have first timer uh, issues that they can grab onto it and contribute to it. And I've, I've liked the culture that's grown around some of our projects that way. And, you know, I get to tap my DNR powers here and there once in a while for that, too. Yeah. It was a project we worked on a number of years ago called Already. And we were getting to the point where they were using it in enough different places. The time zones became a problem. Yeah. And so the folks started, were trying to take on no to time. And no to yeah. time. I was about to say, you called John. Very John quickly. just fixed it, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> he's always fixing it. But that was the fun part, right? Was, yeah. An hour into the three people wrestling with no to time, trying to understand it, like, would, would it help if I could uh, get John Skeet to answer some questions? And they're like, well, that would be hilarious, right? But yeah. presuming that was impossible, like, look, I've known John a long time. And I yeah. literally reached out to a person. He said, listen, they're trying to use no to time. Would you mind? He's like, it immediately drops yeah. into the slack. I'm pretty sure he had a cape on. And talked for an hour, got them on the right path, and then zipped back out again, you know, onto his, you know, back to Stack Overflow and sure. saving the princess from the dragon. And uh, and it, and actually, in the Slack, there's a comment where somebody says, was that really John Skeet? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, that was really John Skeet. But you know, John was delighted. John's oh, delighted that somebody's using his library that somebody wanted to solve a problem with it, that it was a great project. Like he was delighted and it That's what's funny everything too, was better. Is that like, if you're, you know, somebody who's on social media and you follow tech people on social media, like a lot of these people have like the celebrity status, right? Like John's mm -hmm. one of them, you know, another person that's a huge contributor at HGBox is Bill, Bill Wagner, right? Like, you know, these folks that are like, you, you have a conversation with them and you're like, and you almost, for a, a second, forget. Oh, they're a real human being, so they're a celebrity. I'm going to treat them like celebrity, and then like they're like the nicest person on earth. Like I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of conversations with Bill, and he's like one of the nicest people on the planet. Totally down to earth. You know, yeah. ran ran a consulting practice for years and years. Uh, uh, wrote some very fundamental books. He, you know, nothing. And there's no easy way to write a book. He did the hard work of teaching C sharp well back in those early days, and. Uh, yeah, he's and he sought me out when we were first starting with Humanitarian Dual Toolbox in like 2013. He's like, I like what you're doing here. How can I help? Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I find very interesting about HTBox and a lot of open source projects that have this huge conglomerate of different types of voices as contributors. It's obviously some person has an idea, or maybe one or two people have an idea, and then people who are just good people find it and they're like, I want to be a part of this. And that's what yeah. I think makes open source so great, right? Is that not many people have the opportunity to just come across something they're like, something in their brain says, I want to be a part of this. And I think obviously HTBox, you know, the product itself is going for a good cause. So I think that's very helpful. 
But I think a lot of technologists, they just are looking for opportunities to bring the skills they have to other technology mediums, sure. right? Like you I, can't I always just build technology. stuff for the enterprise, right? Have you ever seen that RSA video that's actually based on Daniel Pink's book, Drive, where he talks about autonomy, mastery, and purpose? Yes. And it's actually voiced by him. Yeah. It's from a, from, it's like a 15-minute piece, and RSA is animated with graphics, which is lovely. I, I highly recommend it's watching. But there's a point where he talks about this idea that, that the, about open source development. It's, and, and to explain it to a non-technical person, to a regular mortal, it's like, now, come with me on this. You have a day job. Eight yes. hours a day writing code. And then when you go home at night, you write more code for free. As yeah. As somebody who has it a wife that's not in tech. Yeah. As somebody who has a wife that's not in tech, her yeah. immediate response is, so me, I'm the person that always sees something in the house and I'm like, oh, I'll just make a little thing, right? Like, yeah. so uh, I have two younger children, and one of the things that I was working on uh, my wife was like, I'm going to buy this thing called a wake-up light. And I'm like, okay, what is that? She's like, basically, you can program a light to change colors during a, on a, in a particular schedule. And I'm mm -hmm. like, I can build that. I don't, need I, to, I don't need to buy something. So I built an app that allows you to go to a website, and you specify, okay, this is the light that I want to change color. These are the time schedules that I want the color to be. It's hosted in a Dr. Container's Ring and Raspberry Pi in my house, and it took me some time. And my wife was yeah. like, you literally just did this and it would have cost me $15 on Amazon. Yeah. And my response yeah, is, but I built it. Time on that. Yeah, but I built it, right? And yeah. she always put this back in my face because we'd have this conversation all the time where uh, I say, how much is that going to cost in time? And, mm -hmm. and she, you know, like, this conversation is like, she's going to buy something. And I say, okay, well, we've been talking for 20 minutes. And you're talking about buying a $10 thing versus a $13 thing, like, you know, whatever here. And then she always puts that back in my face when I build open source things. And I'm like, but it's a hobby. I could be yeah. doing anything else. I could be building model airplanes or collecting stamps or whatever, but this mm -hmm. is a hobby. Um, yeah. It just so happens to be tied to my day job in some capacity. Well, and I pay a person to mow my lawn because A, I hate mowing a lawn. B, I'm bad at it, which probably goes with the hate part. And in the time span that the lawn that it takes to, to do lawn care, I can be making something or selling something that's worth far more than what it costs me to have that person take care of it for me who does a better job of it. But that's also, you know, I ask people to pay me for my expertise. The least I can do is hire experts for other things. Yeah, and, and I think to go back to our previous conversation, and, and we're running low on time, I want to make sure that we're respecting that. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things I think, like, in the last four or five years, I have completely changed my mindset around purchasing add-ons to software. Like, I used to be that person that would literally hunt in the Google Play Store for, like, what's the free version of this thing, app that I need, right? And now, I'm like, okay, this app has 4.8 stars, and it's three bucks, I'll buy it. Yeah, it's right, with, latte money, man, right? It's like I yeah. I can skip a coffee and have this app. Yeah. And you know, I've also thrown away a bad coffee too. So and if it's bad yeah. and if I'm unhappy with it, removing it from my phone doesn't hurt me that much easy either. Right? Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, I remember I posted a question about um there was an app that I was looking for on a subreddit. Um and I was like, Oh, what's a good app that everybody recommends? Like the app that everybody uses is nine bucks. Right. 
and I was like, I don't want to spend $9. I don't know if this app's any good. The developer private messages me on Reddit and says, hey, I'm the developer for this particular app. If you don't like it, just message me and I'll give you a refund. It doesn't matter in a year from now, two years, whatever. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to buy it then. Just because I know that you care enough. You're yeah. not some company that's just behind that $9. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I, I've been, I've gotten yeah. pulled into home assistant. I don't know if you know. <sighs> oh, I mean, we could, we can have an entire hour just oh, on home automation stuff. Hours, right? Yes. And that's the thing. It's yeah. like, I, I, I warn people now. It's like, if you ask me about home assistant, look out. I specifically so I didn't want to talk about it because I no. know that you, you like your home automation. Oh yeah. So, but I'm, I'm talking about this in the context of open source. I, you, I bought some whiz lights. W I Z. There's one right there. There's one right over there. So uh, went looking for the integration for Home Assistant. Found a guy. There's a kid in Germany that did mm -hmm. a, he's got a partial implementation in place, and he he says I haven't really tested with multiple bulbs because I only own one. Yep. <laughs> like, yep. Yep. I yep. Buy a pack of bulbs, and he's like, but I have this. You know, you can contribute. I'm like, hey, better than just buying the bulbs. Here's some money. Go buy some bulbs. It's so funny you bring up Wizlite because um, I I own our library, right? No, 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 no. Even better. So I so I have a tool that takes your team's presence and broadcasts it to different lights. So I have support for Philips Hue and LifeX and um, custom APIs and Z lights. And somebody asked me, "Can you do Wiz?" And I'm like, "I don't have a Wizlite." Um, but we were walking through a uh, a home store um, that's orange, and I'm like, "Oh, Wiz lights are twelve dollars. I'll just buy one." And I recently, yesterday, actually just shipped a version of my pro of my open source project that supports Wizlite, because I found some dude who bait who built like a little nougat package, and yeah. like I was like, hey, I'm, I want to use this, and he's like, oh my goodness, that's so great, and yeah, I mean, it's crazy because I don't know enough. For one, the Wiz APIs are not good. Like if you actually nope. They're not good, and and so he wrote this tool to treat it like a socket, like like it is, and just do it. And if I was to try to wire that up myself, I would have been still doing it. And the, yeah. I I took his repo, took it as a dependency, and literally it sent me. It took me like an hour to wire up the connections, and now it's there. And that's open source in a nutshell, right? Yep, hundred percent. And support, and again, it's like for the few we're not. You know, we're not starving artists here. Like, we're doing fine. The fact that I can send this fellow in Germany, you know, $10 a month, yeah. at least for the next few months, I'll remember to turn it off at some point. It's like, hey, I really appreciate what you've already built. I see your roadmap. I like what you're building. I do not have the cycles to contribute to it. Here's my support. It's not a, it's not a wage or anything, but you said you needed more lights. Here's enough money you can, you know, buy a light a month. Yeah, is somebody who has started recently doing using GitHub sponsors. Like, if I use a project, I can toss somebody some money. Like, yeah, I mean, if if it guarantees me that I can use that particular open source project in some time in the future, because that person isn't going to be, I make no money off of this unless I'm contributing. Yeah, because that's a thing too in open source is that. And I don't know you if come you to get a that guarantee, but at least yeah. you bought them a coffee, which you would have done yeah. if you'd been face to face anyway. Yeah. You know, if I bumped into this kid who did the, wrote that library, you think I wouldn't have bought that guy lunch in a second? Of course yeah. I would. 
Yeah, I mean that's and that's that's the beauty of, of open source, and it goes back all the way back to our conversation about you know the hallway track at events, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have conversations with people virtually or in person, you find shared interests about technology, and then all of a sudden you find out, oh well, I have this project that does this. Oh, I have this project that does this. We should collaborate, or you should use this, and it's all. It's just community in a nutshell, right? And okay. sometimes it's really good. And I think that's what makes open source so you know, compelling to me is that, look, I would never have opportunities to talk to the people that I've had a, talk, a chance to talk to on this stream, right? Not just because of access, because I think most people are fine with having conversations with somebody for an hour, but also like I would have never thought to have a conversation with somebody in this space or this space. And right. Without open source, that's not a thing, right? Like I have, I've tried to learn Go about six times, and it's very that's challenging. I mean, it, I mean, it hasn't. I mean, to be honest, I've been a C sharp developer my entire career, and it still hasn't sucked. So, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things where every time I try to work on it, I can build a little thing, and then right. I come back. Si- the Hello World demo. Yeah, and I come back six months later, and I completely have forgotten everything. Yeah. Um. But having a conversation with somebody who, you know, builds like the design concepts for Go for a living, it and having hearing how they think about things, which is completely different than how I think about things from a technology standpoint, it allows us to broaden our mindset, and that's what's really great to me about it. Well, the what's fun about diving into functional like Go is that different way of thinking. Yeah. When you go back and work on C sharp, like it'll change the way you write C sharp code. You can write functional C sharp. It doesn't lead you that way. Yeah. But you know, the the uh, once you get into your head, those the functional approaches, the sort of impairing concurrent and and modular yeah. approach to, to code. It uh, yeah, it's funny what it does to your other programming. Yeah, I'm, it's and it's one of those things too where I think in general humans fear change. And when anything mm-hmm. is different, they immediately like this is bad. I don't like this. This is making my brain a lot of effort to be able to think in in the static declarative approach of C sharp. You know, now you're going to risk that you're going to mess. with. I mean, yeah, heaven for heaven forbid that I change the way I think. Right. That's like the worst thing ever. (laughs) But you also have that fundamental instinct that once exposed to an idea, your mind is already changed. It's too late. And so here is the idea approaches like that's going to change my mind. I think that's also one thing that I think is very interesting about open source is this the entire concept of, you know, we've talked about it at a couple of different points in this conversation about how things can be free at a cost. And I think that's very interesting is that when you talk about the time investment, the, the, the changing of your, I don't want to say of your mindset, but all, like the way you change how you think, right? Open source is a complete enabler of that, right? Um, so I think, you know, I think we can keep talking about open source forever, right? I think that's the whole reason why I decided well, to start doing this stream, right? Um, yeah. but I, I want to be really mindful of your time. I keep looking at the clock. I'm like, I got to wrap up. I got to wrap up. I got to wrap up. Um, so, you know, with that, I want to say thanks Richard for coming on. This was super fun. I really appreciated you being really open to this using, uh, you know, all sorts of great tools that you're very accustomed with and I'm just trying to learn. Um, and you know, having this conversation with open source with people at different stages of open source too has been very exciting for me. Right. Like I, I talked to somebody who um, 
they got started in open source like three or four years ago and they built like a first contributor site, right? And mm -hmm. that process is completely different than, you know, somebody who's been, you know, a more experienced open source person and seeing how open source has changed over the course of time, which is super exciting. I want to thank you so much for hopping on chatting about that. Uh, Isaac, thanks so much. Really fun to, to, to talk. I think we a little, went a little over the map, but I'm not unhappy with that either. That's I fun. mean, and so I, I attribute it, to, and this, if nobody, if the people that are still on, they know Isaac tends to just go down these paths, and I think a lot of people are very comfortable with it, but some people yeah. aren't. You're one of the people that are far more comfortable with it, right? Like, you can just talk uh, about anything. I, I And I do. It's kind of the job, right? I'm interested <laughs> yeah. in everything, and I'll run with whatever topic you want to run with. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, usually how we end the, the stream is I ask my guests if they can think of open source in one word or one small phrase, you know, what comes to mind for you? Wow. You know, I, this closing has been the, 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 has been around community for me. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I'm an old being the old schooler. I've been in a lot of communities along the yeah. way. I think a lot of folks who get exposed to open source, maybe the first community they touch and that draw hits them really hard because communities are very powerful uh i i admire the open source community i am a peripheral player on it uh and happy to be there uh, i value it. it i see its role in there but uh, that's the word that resonates with me these days is it's a community in change uh i'm and hopefully for the better i i totally agree and i think that's that whole concept of community is the whole reason why people are so interested in it, right? Mm -hmm. Like as we as we search for our people, I hate using that phrase, but it's very true, right? When we search for yeah. people that have similar mindsets as us, we find them. It's that that lightning feeling of just like the belongingness, right? Which I think is very very important, right? Other, um, I mean, and it's also it's diversifying too. The you know this the Stalmanesque version of open source is one thing. But mm -hmm. that version is also, there are other in interpretations and spaces, tribes, shall we speak, yep. within the open source world uh, that exist very comfortably. So it, it, it is a broader tent than it was 20 years ago. And I think it's only for the better, right? Like, I, I've, I haven't run into many people that have had such a negative experience with open source that they've decided to never go to open source again. I've seen people with technology in general have that experience, but that's usually not related to the technology. Um, so I think you know t the enabling that open source does as it pertains to bringing people into technology. It doesn't kick as many people out as bring in. Uh, I I think you're you're right. The opportunity space is certainly huge. Ultimately, technology is not something we interact with. It's always people. The technology is purely facilitating. Yeah. Uh, and so there, and there are certainly some personalities in every space that are less pleasant to interact with. Uh, the question is, is that exposed? Is that visible? And can it be corrected? And I think the openness of open source means generally the ugliness can't hide for very long. We tend to tear it. We tend to expose it, confront it, and hopefully improve. And that's the only thing that we can hope for because as Technologists, we love the technology, and I think to your previous point, sometimes we're not a huge fan of people as technologists. So if the technology can help us get a little bit better as people, I think that's awesome. And I want to thank you so much, Richard, for coming on and chatting with us about everything. My pleasure.
Awesome. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This was a great conversation. We'll be back next week with our next guest. And thank you so much for hopping on Coffee and Open Source. Take care, everybody.